This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. There is no copyright on this material, and we encourage you to reproduce it and pass it on to your friends. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at area code 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines by William M. Hetherington As read by Leah Domes Tape number 6 Not a single voice was raised in behalf of the theory first started by Bancroft and carried to its height by Laud that prelates are the successors of the apostles and possess their office and its authority in virtue of unbroken personal apostolic succession, this extravagant absurdity being abandoned by all. Another point respecting the apostleship was introduced, which led to considerable discussion not on its own account but because of its ultimate consequence that the apostles had the keys, that is, the power of government, doctrine, and discipline, immediately given to them. The importance of this point consisted in its bearing upon the independent theory, as also, though not so directly, upon Erastianism. Lightfoot granted that the keys were universally held to mean the government of the church, but that, in his own opinion, the keys were given to Peter only to open the door of admission to the Gentiles and that he regarded the power of the keys as merely the authority to declare doctrinal truth. In this view, as we shall have occasion to show, lay the germ of Lightfoot's Erastianism. The independent brethren resisted the idea that the power of the keys were committed to the apostles in any sense implying official authority, it being one of their principles that the church, in their sense of that term, namely ordinary believers, possessed all power and authority. Goodwin, Simpson, Burroughs, and Bridge all engaged in this debate on the negative side, but the assembly affirmed the proposition. The next discussion arose respecting the office of pastor, which the report stated to be perpetual, and to consist in feeding the flock and in the dispensation of sacraments. In the term feeding was included to preach and teach, to convince, to reprove, to exhort, and to comfort. Mr. Coleman questioned whether a pastor in the Old Testament meant the ecclesiastical officer in the church, and not constantly the civil. This was supported by Lightfoot, and here also appeared the germ of their Erastianism, 
A long discussion followed on the question whether the public reading of the scriptures be the pastor's office. Some desiring to retain what was termed a reader in each congregation, but it was at length decided to belong to the pastor's office. The duty of catechizing was also assigned to the pastor, and likewise that of praying when he preached, which had been prohibited by the bishops. It was also held that it belongs to the pastor to take care of the poor, though not to supersede the deacon's office. The next subject which occupied the assembly's attention was the question whether pastors and teachers or doctors formed one and the same office. The independents maintained the divine institution of a doctor, a distinct from a pastor in every congregation. It had been their own practice to have a doctor or teacher as holding a somewhat subordinate position to that of the pastor one to which an ordinary member might readily aspire, forming a connecting link between the pastor and the people. And they were exceedingly desirous to persuade the assembly to retain this distinction. On the other hand, this was one of the peculiarities of the congregational system, different from what prevailed in all other churches, and it was strenuously and even keenly resisted by the assembly. At length, Henderson interposed to procure an accommodation and agreement between the contending parties. It was at last concluded that there are different gifts and corresponding difference of exercises in the ministers, though these may belong to the same person, that he who most excels in exposition may be termed a doctor, that such a person may be of great use chiefly in universities, and where there are several ministers in the same congregation, each may devote himself to that department in which he most excels, and that where there is but one, he must, to his ability, perform the whole work of the ministry. Henderson warned the assembly that the eyes of all the Reformed churches were upon them, earnestly watching whether their proceedings would be such as to promote or prevent the desired uniformity of all Protestant Christendom, entreating them not to be too minutely metaphysical and abstract in treating of such matters, but rather to direct their attention to leading and important topics, with the view of securing a general harmony, those smaller points should be allowed considerable freedom of interpretation. Footnote. Whitefoot, pages 53 and 58. Bailey, volume 2, page 110. End of footnote. A still more important subject then came before the assembly, the subject of ruling elders, on the right understanding and decision of which depended the adoption or rejection of the distinctive principle of Presbyterian church government. It was brought forward in the following terms, that besides those presbyters that both rule well and labor in the word and doctrine, there be other presbyters who especially apply themselves to ruling, though they labor not in the word and doctrine. Aware that this order of church officers was almost a novelty in England, 
Henderson took an early part in the debate, showing that it had been used in the Reformed churches at a very early period, even before its institution at Geneva, and that it had proved very beneficial to the Church of Scotland. Nearly the whole talent and learning of the assembly were called into long and strenuous action by this discussion, which began on the 22nd of November and was not concluded till the 8th of December. The institution of ruling elder was opposed by Dr. Temple, Dr. Smith, Mr. Gattaker, Mr. Vines, Mr. Price, Mr. Hall, Mr. Lightfoot, Mr. Coleman, Mr. Palmer, and several others besides the independents, of whom, however, Nye and Bridge opposed but partially. It was supported by Mr. Marshall, Mr. Calamy, Mr. Young, Mr. Seaman, Mr. Walker, Mr. Newcomen, Mr. Hurl, Mr. Whitaker, and the Scottish Divines of whom Rutherford and Gillespie particularly distinguished themselves. At length, having thoroughly exhausted their arguments, Henderson moved that a committee might be appointed to draw up a statement how far all parties were agreed, with a view of arriving at some fair accommodation. And being supported by Goodwin, this motion was agreed to and the debate terminated. The report of the committee contained these three propositions. 1. Christ hath instituted a government and governors ecclesiastical in the church. 2. Christ hath furnished some in his church with gifts for government, and with commission to exercise the same when called thereunto. 3. It is agreeable to and warranted by the word of God, that some others beside the ministers of the word or church governors should join with the ministers in the government of the church. To these propositions were added the texts Romans 12, 7 and 8 and 1 Corinthians 12, 28. Some like the propositions, says Lightfoot, but not the applying of the places of scripture and of that mind was I myself, for the proposition I understood of magistracy. Footnote, Lightfoot, page 76. End of footnote. The first and second propositions were, however, affirmed without opposition, and the third with only the negative vote of Lightfoot himself. The texts also were approved, with the additional opposition of Dr. Temple. The carrying of this question was justly regarded as of the utmost importance, as fixing the character of the church to be established, and it is a matter of surprise that the opposition sunk so nearly to nothing. Even the accommodation by means of which these propositions were framed and carried was somewhat of a perilous experiment, for it narrowly missed introducing the unsound principle of admitting into the arrangements of the church what had no higher authority than considerations of expediency and prudence. But all were willing to have admitted the order of ruling elders on these grounds. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 2, page 111.
End of footnote. But this was decidedly rejected, especially by the Scottish divines and by those of the Puritans or English Presbyterians who fully understood the nature of the controversy so long waged by their predecessors against admitting into a divine institution anything of merely human invention. There was yet one point to be discussed respecting the ruling elder. It had been decided that this officer is of divine institution, but it remained to define in what his office consisted, and this gave rise to another and a very animated debate. In a previous discussion respecting the office itself, considerable weight had been attached to the argument drawn from the constitution of the Jewish church and from the elders of the people in that institution. And when preparing to define the office of an elder in the Christian church, reference was again made to the corresponding functionary among the Jews. And the question arose, whether the Hebrew elders were chosen purposely for ecclesiastical business. Coleman first brought forward the inquiry, affirming that both the elders and the 70 senators in the Sanhedrin were civil officers. Mr. Calamy and Dr. Burgess both held the reverse, and Mr. Gillespie proved that the 70 were joined with both Moses and Aaron at their institution, that the elders in other passages of Scripture are joined with the priests, and in others with the prophets, and in others are spoken of as distinct from the rulers. Footnote. Lightfoot, page 78. End of footnote. Lightfoot somewhat differed from Coleman and also from Selden, who took part in this debate and, after a very learned and animated discussion, the opinions of the assembly being nearly balanced, the subject was laid aside for a time without any definite conclusion. The office of deacon next engaged their attention. The institution of this office was not denied but several were of opinion that it was of a temporal nature. This view was entertained by few except the Erastians, and when the assembly decided that the office of deacon was of a permanent nature, Lightfoot alone voted in the negative, though both Coleman and Selden had spoken against it. The opposition to the permanency of this office seems to have arisen chiefly from the fact that there existed in England a civil poor law instituted in the reign of Elizabeth, which led some to oppose the deaconship as unnecessary and others as interfering with the civil arrangement. It was well suggested by Mr. Vines that the proposition of civil officers made by the civil state for the poor should rather slip into the office of a deacon than the reverse, because the latter bears the badge of the Lord. As the report concerning church officers had mentioned widows, this was the last point to be discussed, whether widows were to be considered as deaconesses and their office one of permanent continuation in the church. Some of the independents and one or two others were inclined to retain this office, but after some debate it was decided that the existence of such an office in the church was not proved. With this discussion terminated the year 1643, 
in which the business of the assembly had been chiefly of a preliminary character. It had, however, been solemnly decided that Christ is so completely the head of the church that all its offices are essentially in him, and from him are they all primarily and authoritatively derived, that of these offices some are extraordinary and have ceased, those namely of apostles, prophets, and evangelists, that pastors and doctors or teachers are essentially the same and form the highest order of divinely appointed officers in the church, that ruling elders are also of divine appointment and are distinct from pastors, and that deacons are likewise of divine and permanent institution, though not entitled to preach or to rule, but to take charge of charitable and pecuniary concerns. And as considerable progress had thus been made, reasonable hopes might have been cherished that the business of the assembly would continue to proceed with as much celerity as was consistent with the grave deliberation due to its vast importance. But there were other elements of a less propitious nature at work, some of which had already appeared, and others were felt, though scarcely yet fully visible. On the 19th of October, soon after the assembly had seriously begun its task, the House of Commons intimated, through Dr. Burgess, the desire that two points should be decided upon as speedily as possible, namely, an arrangement for the ordination of ministers, and an arrangement for their institution and induction to vacant benefices. Footnote. Lightfoot, page 24. End of footnote. The former of these points could not be determined till the assembly should have discussed the subject of church officers in general. But as the latter was a subject of immediate and urgent importance, a committee was appointed to determine in what manner trial should be made of the qualifications of those who might apply for those vacant benefices. Twenty-one rules of examination were at length drawn up, in conformity with which every applicant was to be tried, in order to ascertain his soundness in doctrine and fitness for the situation. Application was frequently made by ministers who had been cruelly plundered by the king's army, and constrained to flee to London, both for safety and to seek some kind of maintenance. The examination of such applicants proved to be a very delicate task, as the king's army plundered alike the sound Puritans and the erratic sectarians, so that persons of each character made application to the assembly. Sometimes the sectarians, knowing that no rule of ordination had yet been framed, procured ordination from other sectarians and attempted to deceive the examinators and when this was either not attempted or found impracticable, they then endeavored to form a party among the citizens and others who had flocked to London that from them they might derive a means of subsistence. This led directly to a prodigious increase of sectarianism in London and tended to throw the whole city into a state of confusion and anarchy. To remedy this state of matters, the city ministers presented a supplication to the assembly, 
lamenting their disturbed condition, requesting order to be taken for the ordination of ministers, stating the fearful increase of pernicious sects, and complaining of their relentless endeavors to gather separate congregations, and requesting the assembly to intercede with the Parliament for the redress of these grievances, and for the erection of a college at London, where the youth might be educated as Oxford was in the possession of the king. Footnote. Lightfoot, page 57, Bailey, volume 2, page 111. End of footnote. The assembly answered that it was not yet safe to meddle with the ordination of ministers, that they had applied to the Parliament for redress in the other matters, and desired information to be given respecting those who gather churches that in this also they may seek redress. Mr. Nye objected to the expression against gathering churches and was sharply answered. Footnote. Whitefoot, page 62. End of footnote. This apparently slight incident we have mentioned because it indicates the line of policy which the independent party were beginning to pursue in connecting themselves with the mass of sectarians throughout the kingdom, in which Nye performed so active a part, and of which he seems to have been the chief contriver. 1644 The year 1644 began with the introduction into the assembly of subjects still more certain to produce this union than any that had been previously discussed. The general subject of church officers had been so far determined but the most important parts of this matter remain to be debated, namely the method of appointing church officers and the authority which they ought to possess, or, in other words, ordination and discipline. Well did the assembly know that great diversity of opinion would arise on these two leading points, and gladly would they have avoided entering upon them till a subsequent period had it been at all practicable. But the disturbed state of the country, increased and aggravated by the want of religious ordinances and government, rendered it imperatively necessary that some steps should be taken for the remedy of so many and such great national melodies. A commission had been appointed in September 1643 for the purpose of inquiring into the conduct of ministers throughout the country, and of removing all such as were convicted of scandalous conduct, or proved to be destitute of sufficient qualifications. On the 17th of November, Parliament authorized the publication of a treaty entitled The First Century of Scandalous and Malignant Priests, or a narration of the causes for which Parliament hath ordered the sequestration of the benefices of several ministers complained of before them, and so on. This was drawn up by Mr. White, MP, the chairman of the commission, and it certainly proves that the ministers so sequestered were utterly unworthy of the sacred office, or rather, that many of them were unworthy of the name of men though we cannot pollute our pages by quotations. Footnote. First century, and so on. End of footnote. The reason of referring to the subject is to show the necessity thence arising 
for the ordination of other men to supply the benefices become vacant by means of these sequestrations. However desirous, therefore, the assembly were to postpone the consideration of a subject on which they were certain to disagree till they should have framed a confession of faith and other matters in which entire unanimity was expected, they were constrained reluctantly to proceed to doubtful disputations. There is a considerable difficulty in giving a direct and continuous view of the discussions on which we are now to enter, in consequence of the contemporaneous or rather intertwined manner in which they arose and were conducted. For instead of continuing steadily to prosecute one subject till it was completed and then passing on to another, there were generally two or three subjects under deliberation at the same period, each being peculiarly entrusted to one or other of the committees in which they were prepared for public debate, and were successively laid aside and resumed according to their respective states of preparation. For example, on the 2nd of January, 1644, the two following subjects were both brought forward. Pastors and teachers have power to inquire and judge who are fit to be admitted to the sacraments or kept from them, as also who are to be excommunicated or absolved from that censure. And the apostles had power to ordain officers in all churches and to appoint evangelists to ordain. Notwithstanding the general terms employed, it was impossible to discuss these propositions without bringing forward the very points on which the greatest amount of division existed, namely discipline and ordination. And as they investigated every topic in a minute and scholastic manner, by a series of fine-drawn distinctions and syllogistic propositions previously prepared in the committees, it almost inevitably followed that the business of the committees came before the assembly on alternate days. In order to avoid the seeming confusion of such a mode of procedure, it will be expedient for us to trace each separate subject till its completion, instead of attempting to carry them forward contemporaneously, as the assembly did. It was in consequence of the method of treating every subject minutely and as convenient served that the proposition respecting the apostolic office was thus brought forward, long after its main elements had been defined, and its character as extraordinary and temporary admitted. When this part of the definition was stated, namely, that the apostles had power to ordain officers in all churches, and to appoint evangelists to ordain, the independents were afraid that if this passed unquestioned, it might be held to have been already decided that the apostles alone had that power, and that they had so transmitted it by church officers that none others could ordain, whereas they held that the church itself, that is, ordinary church members assembled, possessed that power. It was also disputed whether the term used, Acts 14.23, Greek word, meant ordination or election, and on this point a long debate took place, Gillespie, Vines, Simpson, and others holding that election was a proper meaning. 
Footnotes. Whitefoot, pages 100 to 102. Bailey, volume 2, page 129. End of footnote. After some further debate on the power of the apostles to appoint evangelists to ordain, the whole proposition received the sanction of the assembly. On the 9th of January, the whole question of ordination was fairly stated by Dr. Temple, chairman of one of the committees, in the following series of interrogatory propositions. 1. What is ordination? 2. Whether necessarily to be continued? 3. Who to ordain? 4. What persons to be ordained and how qualified? 5. The manner how? To these were appended the following answers for the Assembly's consideration. 1. Ordination is a solemn setting apart of a person to some public office in the church. 2. It is necessarily to be continued in the church. 3. The apostles ordained, evangelists did, preaching presbyters did, because apostles and evangelists are officers extraordinary and not to continue in the church. And since in scripture we find ordination in no other hands, we humbly conceive that the preaching presbyters are only to ordain. The first proposition was affirmed without much debate. The second was opposed chiefly because of the word necessarily, Mr. Nye questioning whether it was necessitate finis or necessitate precepti, a necessity for the accomplishment of the purpose or a necessity arising out of its being commanded. Both sides shrunk from the danger of division on this point, and having changed the word necessarily into always, the proposition was affirmed. In the next proposition, it was easily admitted that apostles and evangelists ordained. But when that passage, 1 Timothy 4.14, was referred to as proving that preaching presbyters ordained, a very considerable debate arose. Lightfoot, in particular, asserting that it must mean not ordination but admission to be an elder. And when it was affirmed by the assembly, he and some others voted in the negative. Footnote. Lightfoot, page 113. End of footnote. This was, however, merely the beginning of the struggle. When the latter part of the proposition was brought forward for debate, preaching presbyters were only to ordain, it was felt by all that to this the independence would not assent without some modification. Calamy, Gillespie, and Seaman proposed, therefore, that a committee of independence might be chosen, who should, in their own terms, state the question concerning ordination, in the hope that, by having both views of the subject brought forward at once, it might be possible to fuse and blend them together so as to prevent division. Their report was given in by Mr. Nye as follows. 1. Ordination for the substance of it is the solemnization of an officer's outward call in which the elders of the church in the name of Christ and for the church do, by a visible sign, design the person and ratify his separation to his office with prayer for and blessing upon his gifts in the ministration thereof. 2. That the power that gives the formal being to an officer 
should be derived by Christ's institution from the power that is in elders as such on the act of ordination, as yet we find not anywhere held forth in the word. It will be readily supposed that the assembly must have listened to such vague and unintelligible propositions with considerable amazement, not unmingled with displeasure, to find their courtesy requited by such studied ambiguity certainly not calculated, and it could scarcely be thought intended to promote agreement. They questioned the use of the word elders as obscure and ambiguous, also the expression for the church, which nigh interpreted vice ecclesiae in the stead of the church. Other scrupulous and ambiguous passages, says Lightfoot, were found, which after a very long canvas upon them were laid by and our old proposition reassumed. Footnote. Lightfoot, page 115. End of footnote. The conduct of the independents on this occasion was both discreditable in itself and led to very pernicious results. It was discreditable either to their candor or their talents to produce propositions couched in such ambiguous language, much more calculated to perplex than to clear the subject. And as they were men of decided abilities, the accusation falls upon their character and constrains us to regard them as uncandid and disingenuous. But finding that they had succeeded so ill in their attempt to deceive or confuse in this instance, they never again could be prevailed upon to state to the assembly their own opinions in writing, though sufficiently pertinacious in retaining them and supporting them by every kind of argument. The new course of tactics thus adopted proved the means of retarding the assembly beyond measure, and ended at last in rendering all its prolonged toils comparatively abortive. When the assembly was on the point of resuming the consideration of its own propositions, Lord Manchester entered, bringing an order from the House of Lords which required the assembly to make haste and conclude the subject of ordination. A committee was appointed to prepare the matter for public discussion. And next day, 22nd of January, the two following propositions were reported. One, that in extraordinary cases, something extraordinary may be done until a settled order may be had, yet keeping as close as may be to the rule. Two, it is lawful and according to the word that certain ministers of the city be desired to ordain ministers in the city and vicinity. Jur fraternitatis. A keen debate ensued, Coleman, Goodwin, and Nye opposing, Vines, Seaman, Lightfoot, and others supporting the report. Nye, in particular, offered the most determined and pertinacious resistance to the clause, keeping as close to the rule as may be. Again, says Lightfoot, he interposed again and again. Footnote. Lightfoot, page 117, end of footnote. But in the end, the vote was carried in the affirmative. Every kind of scruple was started, every kind of objection brought forward by the independents, aided by Selden, with whom they did not hesitate to make common cause in this matter.
Nye even went so far as to argue that bishops might still ordain rather than he would admit the case to be extraordinary, requiring a prompt remedial measure. In order, if possible, to end the tedious debate, it was proposed by Gillespie that the question of a presbytery should be expressly declared as still left open, and Vines moved that the independents should propose their own way for the supply of the present necessity. The Earl of Pembroke urged haste, as both church and kingdom were on fire, and might be destroyed during such tedious delays. But Nye would not abate his opposition. After a keen and even stormy debate of 14 days' duration, the subject was laid aside in compliance with the request of Lord Say, who supported the independence and who suggested that it would really expedite the matter first to decide what ought to be the ordinary way and rule of ordination, to which anything extraordinary could be then made to conform. The cause of the extreme obstinacy of the independents in this discussion was their fear that it would overrule two points which they held to be of vital importance, involving the very essence of their system namely the power of ordination by a single congregation and the existence and powers of a presbytery. The assembly repeatedly assured them that these subjects should not be regarded as in any respect decided, and Gillespie tendered four distinct arguments to show that it could not determine the question of a presbytery. Footnote, Abidum, page 130, and a footnote. The subject of ordination was again resumed on the 18th of March, partly with reference to the existing necessity and partly as occurring in the course of discussion respecting the calling and appointment of ministers. One additional element of some importance was now introduced, which led to another still more important. The first was the necessity of designation to some particular place to avoid disorder and irregularity, and the second arising out of this was the consent of the congregation to which the pastor is to be ordained. The form of the proposition brought forward on this point was that he be recommended to that congregation to whom he is to be a minister, and have their consent unless they can show just cause of exception against him. Gillespie proposed to add, or will petition for a man that they conceive may be more advantageous to them in his preaching and more powerful upon their experience. Henderson wished this question to be debated. The Presbytery recommended one and the people desire another. How shall it be determined? Gillespie desired that this might hold. In no case, in a settled church, a minister may be obtruded on a congregation. Rutherford said the scriptures constantly give the choice of the pastor to the people. The act of electing is in the people, and the regulating and correcting of their choice is in the presbytery. Gillespie again resumed, but if they cannot show just cause against him, what then is to be done? The people say, we see no error in him in life and doctrine, but honor and reverence him but we can better profit by another. What is to be done in this case? He then moved that this proposition might be debated. 
He that is to be ordained be not obtruded against the will of the congregation. For the prelates are for obtrusion, the separation for popular voting. Therefore let us go in a medium. At length the debate terminated by the passing of the following proposition. No man shall be ordained a minister of a particular congregation if they can show any just cause of exception against him. Footnote Lightfoot, pages 230 to 233. The conduct and language of the Scottish divines in this debate prove clearly that they held the principle of election by the people to be the right one, and that the utmost modification of it to which they could consent was that no man be intruded. They were, in short, what would now be termed decided non-intrusionists, at the least and their consent to a modified proposition was caused by their dread of the sectarian confusion then prevalent in England. End of footnote. In the beginning of April, the Assembly completed the doctrinal part of ordination and proceeded to frame a directory how it should be conducted. A committee was chosen to prepare it for debate, consisting of Messrs. Palmer, Hurl, Marshall, Tuckney, Seaman, Vines, Goodwin, Gattaker, and the Scottish ministers. Their report was given in and ratified on the 19th of April, and next day laid before both Houses of Parliament. Although Parliament had repeatedly urged the Assembly to hasten forward the Directory and rules for ordination, yet when this had been done, the matter was allowed to remain inoperative for want of the ratification of the legislature from the 20th of April when it was received till the 15th of August. Before it was returned, some rumors had been in circulation that considerable alterations had been made by the Parliament, and when it was actually produced before the Assembly, these were found to be more extensive than had even been apprehended. They had omitted the whole doctrinal part of ordination and all the scriptural grounds for it, and they had chosen only the extraordinary way of ordination, and even in that part had struck out whatever might displease the independents, the patrons, and the Erastians. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 2, pages 198 and 221. End of footnote. The Scottish commissioners would by no means consent to these alterations, and in an address to the Grand Committee of Lords, Commons, and the Assembly, they expressly condemned them. This decided conduct, aided by a timely petition to both houses from the city ministers, produced the desired effect. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 5, page 780. End of footnote. And on the 16th of September, the Assembly's Directory for Ordination was returned, restored to its original condition. On the 18th, a committee was appointed for the ordination of ministers, consisting of 10 of the Assembly Divines and 13 of those belonging to the City of London. This was ratified by both Houses on the 2nd of October, and thus that long-delayed point was concluded. Footnote. Rushworth, Volume 5, page 781. The names of the Assembly Divines were Drs. Burgess and Gouge, 
Messrs. Walker, Conant, Caudry, Calamy, Chambers, Lay, Gower, and Roborough. The city ministers were Messrs. Downham, Dodd, Clendon, Bourne, Roberts, Offspring, Crawford, Clark, Billers, Cook, Lee, Horton, and Jackson. A similar committee was also appointed for the County of Lancaster. Neal, Volume 2, page 273. End of footnote. As the discussions respecting the Directory for Public Worship were not of such importance as those concerning government and discipline, and were first concluded, though not begun till after the other had continued for a considerable time, it will conduce to simplicity and clearness to give an outline of the former of these topics in the present place. On the 21st of May, 1644, Mr. Rutherford moved for the speeding of the Directory for Public Worship, to which no attention had hitherto been paid. In consequence of this motion, Mr. Palmer, Chairman of the Committee, appointed for that purpose, gave in a report on the 24th, which brought the subject fairly before the Assembly. Some little difference of opinion arose whether any other person except the minister might read the scriptures in the time of public worship, which terminated the occasional permission of probationers. But when the subject of the dispensation of the Lord's Supper came under discussion, it gave rise to a sharp and protracted debate, chiefly between the independents and the Scottish commissioners. The independents opposed the arrangement of the communicants as seated at the communion table, it being the custom among them for the people to remain in their pews, while the Scottish members urgently defended the proposed method of seating themselves at the same table. Another disputed point was with regard to the power of the minister to exclude ignorant or scandalous persons from communion. The debates on these points occupied the assembly from the 10th of June to the 10th of July. The directory for the sacrament of baptism was also the subject of considerable debate continued from the 11th of July to the 8th of August. The directory for the sanctification of the Sabbath was readily received, and a committee was appointed to prepare a preface for the completed directory for public worship. This committee consisted of Messrs. Goodwin, Nye, Bridge, Burgess, Reynolds, Vines, Marshall, and Dr. Temple, together with the Scottish ministers. The appointment of so many of the independents was for the purpose of avoiding any renewal of the protracted contentions in which they had so long held the assembly, as we learn from Bailey. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 2, page 242. End of footnote. This part of the assembly's labors received the ratification of Parliament on the 22nd of November, 1644 with the exception of the directions for marriage and burial, which were finished on the 27th of the same month, and soon afterwards the whole received the full ratification of Parliament. It will be remembered that the Assembly of Divines, when required by Parliament to prepare a new form of government and discipline, attempted at first to begin and proceed 
with their task in a manner strictly systematic and logical, commencing with Christ, the divine head of the church, who possesses all power and all offices by way of eminency in himself. From that they proceeded to mention the various kinds of church officers who are named in the scriptures, and to define the nature of their official powers and duties, intending to complete this part before undertaking any other. But they were turned aside from the systematic course of procedure, partly by the urgency of the Parliament's desire to obtain a directory for ordination to supply vacant charges, and partly by their own wish to avoid the discussion of controverted topics so they should have agreed on as many as possible. Even in these preliminary steps, however, they came in contact with several points which led to keen debates between the independent and the Presbyterian parties, proving but too plainly that a full agreement was scarcely to be expected. For a time, the Scottish commissioners strove to act the part of peacemakers and repeatedly moved to avoid disputable topics and to direct their attention chiefly to those on which all might be united. As the subjects on which they were engaged advanced, this became impracticable and all parties prepared for the struggle. On the 19th of January, 1644, Dr. Burgess reported from the first committee who were to draw up the propositions concerning Presbytery in the following terms. 1. That the scripture holdeth out a Presbytery in a church. 1 Timothy 4.14 4, Acts 15, 2, 4, and 6. 2. That a presbytery consisted of ministers of the word and such other public officers as have been already voted to have a share in the government in the church. Footnote. Lightfoot, page 115. End of footnote. The subject having been thus brought forward in the assembly in the due order of procedure, the Scottish commissioners prepared a book containing an outline of the presbyterial form of church government, as it already existed in Scotland, and caused a copy of it to be given to each member of assembly. They also prepared a paper containing a brief statement of the chief heads of church government, which having been laid before the grand committee, was by them transmitted to the assembly for their consideration. It was to the following effect. Assemblies are fourfold. 1. Elderships of particular congregations. 2. Classical presbyteries. 3. Provincial synods. 4. National assemblies. Elderships particular are warranted. 1. By Christ's institution, Matthew 18.17. 2. By the common light of nature. 3. By unavoidable necessity. Classical presbyteries are warrantable. 1. By Christ's institution, Matthew 18.17. 2. By the example of apostolic churches, instancing in the Church of Jerusalem, Antioch, Ephesus, Corinth, Rome, and so on. Footnote. Lightfoot, page 119. End of footnote. These propositions were given to the committee which was entrusted with the preparation of all matters connected with Presbytery, 
as the proper channel through which they might again be brought forward in the assembly, not, however, without some opposition, both from the independents and from Selden. This took place on the 25th of January, and on the 27th of the same month, Lord Wharton reported from the House of Lords that a person named Ogle, formerly a royalist officer, at that time a prisoner, had been detected holding correspondence with Lord Bristol, expressing his hope that a large party of the Parliament's adherents might be induced to join the King. If the moderate Protestant and the fiery Independent could be brought to withstand the Presbyterian. Footnote, Ebidum, page 126. End of footnote. His lordship produced, at the same time, letters from the Earl of Bristol encouraging the scheme of bringing in the independence to the support of the royal cause. In this plot, the independence in the assembly do not appear to have been directly implicated, for Nye and Goodwin assisted in its detection by obtaining permission to hold private intercourse with Ogle and to seem to consent to his proposals with the view of ascertaining their full extent and nature. Footnote. Bailey, Volume 2, page 137. End of footnote. Although the assembly independents were vindicated from participation in this plot, yet a certain amount of suspicion rested on the party in general, which, together with the points of difference already stated, and those on the brink of being brought forward, seemed to have induced them to adopt a course which proved exceedingly pernicious, so far as regarded the prospect of arriving at ultimate unanimity. About the end of January, or the beginning of February 1644, they published a treaty termed An Apologetical Narration, humbly submitted to the Honourable Houses of Parliament by Thomas Goodwin, Philip Nye, Sidrack Simpson, Jeremy Burroughs, William Bridge, the date on the title page is 1643, but the parliamentary year commenced on the 25th of March, according to the English computation, and Bailey mentions this treaty as newly published in the letter dated the 18th of February, 1644, he dating the beginning of the year from January, as had been the custom in Scotland from the year 1600. The language of Bailey is very pointed respecting this production. At last, says he, foreseeing they behooved ere long to come to the point, they put out, in print on a sudden, an apologetical narration of their way, which law had lain ready beside them, wherein they petitioned the Parliament in a most sly and cunning way for a toleration, and withal lent two bold wipes to all the Reformed churches, as imperfect yet in their Reformation, till their new model be embraced. Footnote, Bailey, Volume 2, page 130. End of footnote. Bailey further insinuates that the appearance of the treaty was by some men intended to contribute to the very wicked plot at that same instance a working, but shortly after discovered almost miraculously. If this conjecture be correct, the intercourse of Nye and Goodwin with Ogle 
may have been for the purpose of concealing their own connection with the plot, rather than to aid in its complete detection. We are not, however, desirous to fix upon them a large amount of criminality, as conducting dark and treacherous intrigues, then can be maintained by the clearest and most irresistible evidence, and therefore shall not at once adopt the suggestion of Bailey. The publication of this treaty, the apologetical narration by the independents, tended greatly to prevent the probability of any amicable arrangement in which all parties might agree. Till that time nothing had been done which foreclosed the possible adjustment of at least all minor differences, and the Scottish divines in particular had striven to avoid the premature determination of points disputed by the independents. But when they had thus carried the controversy away from the assembly to the parliament, and had by publishing this work laid it before the world, it became almost morally impossible that any accommodated adjustment could take place, each party feeling bound in honor to make out its own cause and to adhere pertinaciously to the views thus publicly declared. It may be remarked also that the Scottish commissioners had always caused their publications to be laid before the assembly, so as to render them fairly the subjects of discussion, whereas the independents addressed their production to the Parliament and published it to the community without formally giving copies to the assembly, so that whatever might be thought, the subject could not, without violation of order and propriety, be taken up and debated there. This, of course, led to the publication of a series of answers, in which, as usual, each disputant was more eager to confute his antagonist than to promote peace and harmony. From that time forward, the contest between the independents and the Presbyterians became one of irreconcilable rivalry, to which the utter defeat of the one or the other was the only possible termination. And historical truth compels us to say that as this bitter warfare was begun by the independents, they are justly chargeable with all the consequences of the fatal feud. The apologetical narration is, in many points of view, a remarkable production. Though it extends to no more than 31 pages a small quarto, it contains a very plausible account of the history of the five independent divines, the peculiar tenets of church government which they held, and their objections against the Presbyterian system so expressed as both to convey a highly favorable view of themselves and their opinions to Parliament and to the public, and to serve as a vehicle of skillfully constructed adulation to Parliament itself. The treaty begins by complaining of the accusations which were generally urged, though not expressly directed against us in particular, yet in the interpretation of the most reflecting on us by which they had been awakened and enforced to anticipate a little that discovery of themselves which otherwise they had resolved to have left to time and experience of their ways and spirits. They present themselves, therefore, to the supreme judicatory of this kingdom 
which is and has been in all times the most just and severe tribunal for guiltiness to appear before, much more to dare to appeal unto, and yet withal the most sacred refuge and asylum for mistaken and misjudged innocence. They then mentioned that most of them had enjoyed stations in the ministry ten years before, which they had been constrained to abandon in consequence of the corruptions in the public worship and government of the church. Having been compelled first to look at the dark part, as they term it, or the actually existing evils which forced them to exile, they next begin to inquire into and examine the light part, or the positive part of church worship and government, as stated in the apostolic directions and the examples of the primitive New Testament churches. In this inquiry, say they, we looked upon the word of Christ as impartially and unprejudicedly as men made of flesh and blood are like to do in any juncture of time that may fall out. We had no new commonwealth to rear, to frame church government unto, a hint for the Erastians, whereof any one piece might stand in the other's light to cause the least variation by us from the primitive pattern. We had no state ends or political interests to comply with, no kingdoms in our eye to subdue unto our mold, which yet will be coexistent with the peace of any civil government on earth, no preferment of worldly respects to shape our opinions for. We had nothing else to do but simply and singly to consider how to worship God acceptably, and so most according to his word. Footnote. Apologetical narration, pages 3 and 4. End of footnote. These good men do not seem to have perceived that a precisely similar course of reasoning in a closely similar condition led to the erroneous conclusions of the ascetic and monastic orders in the early ages of Christianity nothing being more common than for men to spring from one extreme into that which is most directly and remotely opposite. And it will be observed that there is an allusion to the usual charge brought against the Scottish Covenanters, which it would have been more in accordance with the spirit of charity and peace not to have made. They next proceed to point out the advantages which they enjoyed from the writings of the nonconformists, the errors of the separatists or brownists, the example of other reformed churches, and particularly the example of their expatriated countrymen in New England. As if to prove that they were not men of unaccommodating temper and rigid sectarian spirit, they admit that even in the worst times of the Church of England, multitudes of the assemblies and parochial congregations thereof were the true churches and body of Christ, and the ministry thereof, a true ministry. The italics are in the work itself. And that they both had held and would hold communion with them as the churches of Christ. Mention is also made of the friendly terms in which they had lived with the National Presbyterian Church of Holland as a further proof of their truly Christian fairness and liberality of spirit. Having given this general view of their own feelings, they proceed to state briefly the way and practices of their churches, 
which, accordingly, we quote in their own words. Our public worship was made of no other parts than the worship of all other Reformed churches doth consist of, as public and solemn prayers for kings and all in authority, and so on. The reading the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, exposition of them as occasion was, and constant preaching of the word, the administration of the two sacraments, baptism to infants, and the Lord's Supper, singing of psalms, collections for the poor, and so on, every Lord's Day. For officers and public rulers in the church, we set up no other, but the very same which the Reformed churches judge necessary and sufficient, and as instituted by Christ and his apostles for the perpetual government of his church, that is, pastors, teachers, ruling elders, with us not lay, but ecclesiastical persons separated to that service, and deacons. And for the matter of government and censures of the church, we had not executed any other but what all of knowledge, namely admonition and excommunication upon obstinacy and impenitency, which we, bless God, we never exercised. This latter, we judged, should be put in execution for no other kind of sins than may evidently be presumed to be perpetrated against the party's known light. We had these three principles more especially in our eye to guide and steer our practice by. First, the supreme rule without us was the primitive pattern and example of the churches erected by the apostles. A second principle we carried along with us in all our resolutions was not to make our present judgment and practice a binding law unto ourselves for the future which we, in like manner, made continual profession of upon all occasions, which principle we wish were, next to that most supreme, namely to be in all things guided by the perfect will of God, enacted as the most sacred law of all other, in the midst of all other laws and canons ecclesiastical, in Christian states and churches throughout the world. Thirdly, we are able to hold forth this true and just apology unto the world, that in the matters of greatest moment and controversy, all still chose to practice safely. And so, as we had reason to judge that all sorts, or the most of all the churches, did acknowledge warrantable, although they make a didiments thereunto. In order to explain what they mean by these adidiments, they proceed to say, for instance, whereas one great controversy of these times is about the qualification of the members of churches and the promiscuous receiving and mixture of good and bad, wherein we chose the better part, and to be sure, received in none but such as all the churches in the world by the balance of the sanctuary acknowledged faithful. With regard to church government, after referring to the Presbyterian system at that time prevalent in all the Reformed churches except that of England, they say, we could not but judge it a safe and an allowed way to retain the government of our several congregations from matters of discipline within themselves 
to be exercised by their own elders, whereof we had, for the most part of the time we were abroad, three at least in each congregation, whom we were subject to, yet not claiming to ourselves an independent power in every congregation, to give account or be subject to none others, but only a full and entire power complete within ourselves, until we should be challenged to err grossly. To meet the objection that such a system afforded no remedy for misconduct in any erring congregation, they state that when one church gives offense to others, they ought to submit to trial and examination by those offended. And if the offending church should persist in their error, then the others are to pronounce that heavy sentence against them of withdrawing and renouncing all Christian communion with them until they do repent. This sentence of non-communion, as they term it, is what they meant by excommunication. And, as its efficiency was questioned, they say, in answer to such an objection, and if the magistrate's power to which we give as much, and, as we think, more than the principles of the presbyterial government will suffer them to yield, do but assist and back the sentence of other churches denouncing this non-communion against churches miscarrying, according to the nature of the crime, as they judge meet, and, as they would, the sentence of churches excommunicating other churches in such cases upon their own particular judgment of the cause. Then, without all controversy, this, our way of church proceeding, will be every way as effectual as their other can be supposed to be. A short narrative is then given of the way in which they had succeeded in terminating a dispute which had occurred among them while in Holland. But strict truth constrains us to say that their narrative is by no means of an impartial character, and as the whole facts of the case were well known to many of the assembly divines from their intercourse with the Netherlands, they could not fail to be displeased with this apologetic account of the affair. The relation goes on to suggest, in a tone of considerable self-complacency, that though the Reformed churches had made considerable progress, yet it seemed likely that a much more perfect reformation might be obtained, manifestly implying that this would be best accomplished by following their model. Again complaining of the reproaches and calumnies which they had endured, they mention as among them that proud and insolent title of independency was affixed unto us as our claim, the very sound of which conveys to all men's apprehensions the challenge of an exemption of all churches from all subjection and dependency, or rather a trumpet of defiance against whatever power spiritual or civil, which we do abhor and detest, or else the odious name of Brownism, together with all their opinions, as they have stated and maintained them, must needs be owned by us, although upon the very first declaring our judgments in the chief and fundamental points of all church discipline, and likewise since, it has been acknowledged that we differ much from them. And we did then, and do here publicly profess, 
we believe the truth to lie and consist in the middle way betwixt that which is falsely charged on us, Brownism, and that which is the contention of these times, the authoritative presbyterial government in all the subordinations and proceedings of it. Footnote. Apologetical narration. Pages 23 and 24. End of footnote. After a few more general declarations respecting their own peaceable practices and constant forbearance in the midst of many provocations and their resolution to bear all with a quiet and strong patience, they intimate their intention to decline further controversy, reserving the declaration and defense of their opinions to the Assembly. They declare also that their full agreement with the Assembly in all points of doctrine that had yet been discussed, and their wish to yield in matters of discipline, in which alone they had yet deferred, to the utmost latitude of their light and consciences. And finally they conclude their apologetical narration by beseeching the Parliament to regard them as men who, if they cannot be promoters, have no wish to be hinderers of further reformation, who differ less from the Reformed Churches and their brethren than they do from what themselves were three years past, who have long been exiles and are now sufferers of reproach, and who pursue no other design but a subsistence, be it the poorest and meanest, in their own land, with the enjoyment of the ordinances of Christ, and with the allowance of a latitude to some lesser differences with peaceableness, as not knowing where else with safety, health, and livelihood to set their feet on earth. The publication of this apologetical narrative operated instantaneously like a declaration of war. A number of answers almost immediately appeared, various in talent, learning, and power, but at least sufficiently keen and pointed. Even the calm, plausible, and stately tone of the narrative tended to provoke their antagonists to the use of undue asperity, for they regarded it as an attempt to recommend their own system and disparage others by means of careful concealments, plausible evasions, and alluring insinuations of its accommodating nature, skillfully contrasted with hints and suggestions of an unfavorable kind respecting the character and tendency of the Presbyterian form of church government and discipline. For this reason, many seem to think that the narration was not merely to be answered, but assailed with vehemence and indignation. In this, although the temptation was great, they certainly erred, and erred grievously, both because such a method is not likely to disarm hostility or remove prejudice, and because it seemed to prove that the charge of intolerance so frequently urged against them was but too well founded. Let it, however, be observed that none of the Scottish divines entered warmly into this controversy, although the independents had alluded to them in a manner sufficiently ungracious. Bailey, indeed, speaks of them with considerable severity in some parts of his letters, and the view which he gives of their system and his dissuasive is certainly not such as would gratify its adherents and Rutherford did not hesitate to encounter them in a fair argument in several of his works. 
but without any asperity of temper or harshness of language. They were answered by Mr. Hurl in his treaty entitled The Independency Upon Scripture of the Independency of Churches, and he also retained a dignified and Christian-like calmness of spirit and manner, but other antagonists kept no such terms. Dr. Bastwick, Mr. Vickers, and Mr. Edwards assailed their narration with not less keenness of expression than strength of argument. Of these answers, the most elaborate was that entitled Antipologia, or a full answer to the apologetical narration by Thomas Edwards, extending to 259 pages of a small quarto, and embracing every disputed or suggested topic. It will scarcely be denied by those who have carefully perused the Antipologia that it furnishes a very ample and strong but most ungracious refutation of the main positions taken up by the authors of the apologetical narration. No formal reply was returned by the independents to the Antipologia, but Mr. Burroughs sometime afterwards published a vindication of himself from some of the charges that had been urged against him. To that vindication we may have occasion to refer subsequently for another purpose. Instead, therefore, of tracing the Antipologia and extracting its statements, it may be enough to advert to some of the main points in which it answered the narration. It is proved clearly by facts that the independent brethren had not been such silent and retiring men as they represented themselves to have been, but that, on the contrary, they had been very active in endeavoring to recommend and spread their own views as widely as possible, that in reality all their principles, of which they spoke as in a great measure discovered by themselves in their own study of the scriptures, had been previously promulgated and acted upon by others, that, in effect, their boasted theory of non-communion had not been found adequate to the maintenance of peace among them, and had but very imperfectly answered the end in the case to which they referred as a particular instance of its sufficiency, that they had not experienced any peculiar hardships either before or during their exile, and that, since their return, they had enjoyed comfort, influence, and honor, at least equal to that which any of the Presbyterians had obtained. The insinuations against the Presbyterian system were shown to be invidious and unfounded, and were very sharply retorted against themselves and their course of procedure, and their practice in gathering churches out of churches was shown to be contrary to their own declarations as members of the Westminster Assembly. It was proved also that they maintained a more intimate intercourse with the Brownists and other sectarians than they were willing to admit, and were engaged in a series of intrigues which they were anxious to conceal. All these points appear to be proved in the Antipologia by a strength and minuteness of evidence which could not be set aside, in which they did not attempt to meet. But there was so much of a fiercely hostile spirit displayed by Edwards that his attack recoiled somewhat upon himself, and diminished considerably the value of his production, 
while it furnished a kind of excuse for his antagonists in abstaining from giving a direct answer. Such was the first direct outbreak of the controversy between the Independents and the Presbyterians, a controversy greatly to be deplored as having proved ultimately the main cause why the Westminster Assembly failed to accomplish all the good which had been expected from its important deliberations. Viewed as a theological controversy alone, it contained but few, and those not vitally important, elements. There was no disagreement between the two parties in matters of doctrine. They both admitted the same orders of office bearers in the Church, though the independents would have recognized more than the Presbyterians thought either necessary or commanded in the scripture, and they differed little in their opinions respecting the powers properly inherent in congregations. But the independents refused to recognize the Presbyterian system of successive church courts as presbyteries, synods, and assemblies, possessing authoritative jurisdiction over those immediately beneath them, though they were willing to admit the advantage of synods in cases of difficulty, to the opinions of which great respect would be due, but not subjection and necessary obedience. The point, however, on which the greatest disagreement existed was that relating to the ideas which they attached to the term church. In their view, each company of believers, though not more than seven in number, forms a church, complete in itself and in no respect subordinate to or requiring the aid of any other church. Such a church might, at its first formation, be entirely without pastors, elders, or church officers of any kind. But having met together, and made a solemn declaration of faith, and entered into a mutual church covenant, they immediately became possessed of such inherent powers as to entitle them to choose and ordain all necessary church officers without the presence or the intervention of any pastor previously ordained. Other pastors might indeed be present, but their presence was not necessary to the validity of the ordination conferred. In the same manner, the congregation of ordinary members might censure or depose their office bearers and choose and ordain new ones whenever they thought proper and if the office-bearers did not readily submit and become private members again, the congregation were entitled to withdraw from communion with them altogether, and to reconstruct their system as at first. Against such proceedings, no appeal could be taken to any other authority, each congregation possessing all power in itself, and being free to have recourse to the principle of non-communion in any case though against the whole Christian church. Even when thus stated, the difference between the independent and the Presbyterian systems may be brought within a very narrow compass. The Presbyterians never denied that a company of true believers might be a true church, though destitute of pastors, nor that they might select the most grave and pious of their number and set him solemnly apart to the office of the ministry without the presence of any ordained pastor, if in circumstances where that could not be obtained. They admitted that the church must possess in itself the power of all that is necessary to the continuation of its own existence. 
But they held also that Christ himself at first chose and appointed office bearers and gave to them authority to ordain others, that this was a matter of precept and to be regularly obeyed in every instance where that was possible because it had been so commanded, while they regarded the congregational mode as a matter of necessity, justifiable only in cases where without it the enjoyment of Christian ordinances could not be obtained. The error of the independence consisted in adopting as the ordinary rule the case of necessity instead of the method of precept, and in adhering so pertinaciously to this view as to condemn and refuse to admit into their communion all who could not agree with them. It was a necessary consequence of this essential principle that the independents held the theory of admitting none to be members of their churches except those whom they believed to have been thoroughly and in the highest sense regenerated or, in their language of the time, true saints, and consequently perfectly qualified to exercise rightly all the high and sacred functions which they asserted to belong to the congregation as in itself a complete church. For the same reason, they necessarily opposed the idea of a national church in any other sense than as a series of congregational churches gathering together true believers as the wheat and leaving the chaff to its fearful fate. And following up this theory, they regarded it as perfectly right to gather churches of their own kind out of the congregations of other ministers a process which necessarily gave great offense to those whose congregations they thus divided and led away. Nor was it at all strange that considerable numbers should be willing to join a system which gave such irresponsible power to ordinary church members, and which, at the same time, certainly tended to encourage the feeling of spiritual pride in those who, in being admitted, were recognized as truly regenerated persons. In one point of view, they were, to a certain extent, right. It must always be desirable that church members should be real believers and that Christian communion should be enjoyed by none but true believers. But it must also be impossible for man who cannot read the heart to avoid being deceived by the plausible language and manners of skillful hypocrisy. And therefore, it was impossible for the congregational theory to be fully realized and at the same time, while assuming so much purity and realty in its members, its want of the power either to inflict church censures or to appeal to higher authority rendered it peculiarly unable to preserve that very purity in which it assumed its superiority over other churches to consist. Please continue listening on tape number 7.